Welcome to the Value Engineering Experts Podcast. In this show, Martin Halliwell explores cutting-edge technologies aimed at addressing the climate crisis in the built environment through thoughtful conversations with industry experts. Here's your host, Martin Halliwell. Welcome to another exciting episode of the Value Engineering Experts. Today, I've got an interesting guest and an interesting company that sells basaltic rebar, basaltic or glass bar, I believe it's from uh, from Europe, is uh, is a is a good value proposition because it's completely inert in its uh, corrosive tendencies, and it's quite cost effective. It comes in a variety of sizes. The company is Meta Design and Engineering and Technical Services. And I've got two individuals, David Lawn, PNG, who I know quite well, and an engineer of his, Jamshed Zora. Their 188 number is 188-518-6332. So today we hope to talk with Robert Higgins, assisting. Robert, as many of you know, has helped me on re- two recent podcasts on E5 the miracle admixture going through the revolution of potentially proving 1,000-year mixed design. It's nano-colloidal silica uh, invented by Joe Shetterly, a finisher. So we're going to talk about how those two products might blend together. And uh, I look forward to uh, having a good session with David Lawn. He's quite articulate does a number of things in Windsor, Ontario, which is close to Detroit. And I believe he has a U.S. sister company that does the basaltic bars. In any case, welcome to the Value Engineering Experts. I hope you enjoy the show today. Thank you. Welcome, David, to the Value Engineering Experts. Uh, Really appreciate it. I'm happy to help you guys. Uh, Your company is called Texon GRP in terms of the bar product is that is that branded yes. in, in the yes. U.S. as well? Yes, it's and Texon Grizzly Reinforcement Products. So yeah. we went with Texon GRP, which is Texas and Ontario, because of our relationship with okay. uh, Texas and Ontario. And, okay. the, uh, and the Grizzly is uh, sort of speaks for itself in the logo, and the tree is our, of course, Ontario's uh, provincial tree, and then the uh, the star is uh, the Texas star. Robert, we did a, a patent uh, that involves uh, FE Spiral, it's called. It's a 75-year it's a culvert patent, and David was very helpful, but we were able to get uh, – he's got four-millimeter rope, so he's able to generate – I think it's 100 feet long. The, oh, uh, yeah. we, could do, we could do thousands of feet if we need it. Oh, so it was very useful. Yeah. We, one of the patent itself that went with the culvert, which was – a plastic blank HDPE. It was uh, like a double Dutch skipping rope. So it's quite innovative. And that, that was one of my better thoughts for that because uh, it was hard to do the two inches of reinforcing between the old covert and the new. With the yeah. Blank. Yeah. Anyway, I think you understand that stuff. Yes. So Robert, I thought was a great guest to have today, David, because Robert Higgins has got 45 years experience. 
is very well regarded in the States, has a lot of integrity, and has worked for meaningful meaningful corporations and uh, and been a consultant for a number of years. Jamshed and, and David have a successful business, and, and I think you're doing a, a broad range of engineering, right, David? Correct. Somehow you got into this bar, and I think we share the sustainability interest, even with Robert. Robert and I are quite excited about E5. So E5 is nanocolloidal silica, and to be clear, it's just growing into a uh, into a presence, specificationproducts.com in the States. Robert's hired as a consultant and retained by them. So Robert has really uh, done his homework on that product. Totally unique in the sense that it's it holds the water. It almost makes the water heavy. You get rid of all wet cure labor. You don't have the plastic shrinkage cracking, which has a tremendous opportunity for, uh, in my opinion, your fibers. Like they're using E5 admixture in ICF systems, in insulated concrete form systems without rebar. And, you know, my belief for sustainability is that we use too much rebar. And as if we can get rid of the cracking, which is nanocoidal silica does, and get dimensional stability, all of a sudden you've got things like Infinity Slab, which uses helix fibers, and they're going to 100 foot saw cuts. 100-foot saw cuts. On, wow. On wow. Did you not know that, Robert? Yeah, 100-foot saw cuts. They call it Infinity Slab. But that's a partnership with Joe Shetterly. Again, Purdue University was key with that. So now we can talk a little bit about Meta's products where we're really trying to uh, get Robert familiar with that. And I think it's a very Mac marriage because I love the non-steel. You know, I, I like that stiffer yield curve. So it's a it's a brittle fracture on a bar. Like you're gonna get a you're not gonna get the running time, what we call it as civil engineers. You're, but you don't need it when you're properly uh, within the yield curve. So everything's gonna be crack resistant in these applications when you model them. And I'll let David do more of the talking, I think. So David, your support, Jam Shed, we're gonna be able to call you as well, I hope, or people can of course they can <laughs> get your cell phone number. Um, <laughs> Well, I, I'm bad that way, Jim. Shed, I'll give the cell phone number out on the. On the <laughs> but you know, it's about service, and and you know, I always found Jim Shed, you know, just a tip for a young guy. You know, if you return the calls in 24 to 48 hours, you get a reputation, and and that'll help David because they won't bug him. Oh, I didn't hear back from Jim Shed, right? Anyway, yeah, I'm sure right, you're you're having a good experience with David. He's a good guy. David and I were introduced by a bank, you know, by a friend at the HSBC Bank, Robert. But why don't you guys talk a little bit and I'll uh, like get to know Robert now and some of his background. Robert, quickly give us a 10,000 foot view of what you've done over the years. Okay, well, I, I got involved with waterproofing concrete back in 1976. And I uh, started my own manufacturing company in 1979. And while I was manufacturing, I was I would start, I did a lot of analysis. I got more, I geek out pretty easily where I find things really interesting. If there's a technical issue and I like, I love really tough problems. I got presented by one because I wrote an article for Construction Specifier Magazine, which is an international magazine for specification writers. And an attorney contacted me and got a hold of me and asked me if I would get involved with this lawsuit. And it was a major case was with the Hotel Del Coronado 
in San Diego, world famous hotel, and the owner's a gazillionaire, and and uh, and everybody's excited. And the engineer was uh, pretty stressed out because he was his feet were being held to the fire about certain things that were done to the building. And the reason why they called me is because I did this article on carbonation, which you know. We'll return to that some other time, but you know why they want to carbonate concrete is beyond me because you actually don't want to do that, but uh, that's another issue. But anyway, I said, well, let me do a document review and I'll tell you if I can take the case. So I decided so reviewed the documents for a week and I got back with the attorney. He said, do you think we can minimize our exposure? I said, why minimize it? We can win this one. He said, we can't win this one. I mean, here's this expert, this expert, expert. Yeah, all these experts from all over the world were in there and the most highly regarded. I said, well, they missed a really important point. I said, what's that? I said, well, they're citing an ASTM, uh, an ACI standard. I said, yeah. I said, well, that didn't exist when the building was designed. And I said, and the chloride content of the concrete, what they're showing me in the samples, is too uniform. That is not caused by seacoast structure exposure as they're trying to state. I said, well, wouldn't it even out to like that? I said, no, no, it would, it would go back and forth and yet you'd have concentration areas and that's not doing that. That's not what concrete does. So then when I had them analyze it for the type of chloride it was, it turned out it was a ready mix manufacturer that put calcium chloride in because they were doing these precast uh, units during the winter. So it completely absolved the engineer and it made me kind of famous overnight. So I've been doing construction defect litigation ever since then. And I've gone out and one of the most fun projects I ever did was the London Underground. I was flown out there in the middle of the 1990s and went out there a couple of times, ended up waterproofing 60 miles of a tunnel, something they didn't think could be done from the inside without major renovations and major repairs. We were able to do it for not even 10 cents on the dollar for what they were forecasting. And then had even a bigger challenge when we had this Hawaiian tunnel. It was called the H3. It was the biggest uh, civil project of its time in Hawaii. And they literally put this tunnel through the bottom of this mountain. It was leaking like a sieve. And uh, so anyway, I'm talking to a general contractor, and they're freaking out because they can't open because it would damage the cars with the alkaline moisture. I said, well, we can fix that. He said, well, you can't fix this. I said, so I looked at him and said, hold my beer. I said, we'll do some test areas. Did two test areas, they dried out. Can you do a couple more? Did two more test areas, they dried out. We ended up drying out the tunnel in, uh, in a period of two weeks. And it stayed dry ever since. So those are the kind of projects I get involved with where concrete experts say, well, you can't do that. I found a lot of people in the concrete industry don't really understand concrete. They're reciting information they've been told and led to believe by others they believe to understand the problem that don't either. This is all inherited bad information. Uh, so I love to get involved with things like what you're doing, where I can get rid of the bad information and get involved with things that work. That's probably the best way I can explain it. And, and, uh, and I'm a chemist, so I've developed different uh, products to treat concrete. And, and I, st- I still enjoy doing that, but uh, not as much as I like solving problems. And now with E5, you were going to actually do a colloidal silicon, were you not? Yeah, years ago, I was going to introduce that to my old company, but I decided not to because the company was heading in a direction I didn't want to go. So I ended up resigning from the company I founded in 2009. And uh, I, I was approached by several companies to work 
but I didn't want to be an employee. I, I like being an, an independent consultant. And uh, one of the really fun assignments was a long one, went for almost five years, was with Excel Brands Adhesive. They're now a uh, division of Bostic. I helped them redo most of their literature uh, as far as and warranty language and technical tightening of their their technical data. Because sometimes it would refer to, say, pH and alkalinity as interchangeable terms. I said, do not do that. Those are totally different. Those are separate and apart. Don't confuse those two. So I gave an example how you can increase alkalinity and lower the pH. I said, if you take an egg and you put it in water, it has a very low alkalinity because the calcium carbonate in it is very low in solubility. You add a little bit of, and it was, you say you start out with uh, tap water that's just 7.5 pH. Well, if you add vinegar, the, the pH of the water will drop temporarily, but as it starts dissolving calcium carbonate, the pH will rise a little bit, but it stays down in the neutral area. Well, as you keep adding vinegar, it keeps dissolving the calcium carbonate. So that's increased the alkalinity, but it doesn't necessarily increase the pH. So people do not understand there's a clear delineation between pH and alkalinity, and a lot of them are nonlinear in their concentration. And that's especially true with concrete. So those that don't deal with the chemistry in a proper way often find themselves tripping over themselves, running into problems they couldn't anticipate because they weren't taught the information correctly. So that's, that's, what, that's what I bring to the table. That's quite useful, I think, in, in uh, expert witness work. But listen, David, why don't you give us your uh, challenges and, and your successes in terms of you seem to have a a bar that's uh, well-priced compared to, let's say, FRP, correct? Sure, Martin. Thank you. And I have to tell you, Bob, that's quite impressive. I, I really appreciate hearing about your background and Jamsheed and I and all the other engineers within our organization. We constantly tell them, don't believe all the things that you read and don't believe what yeah. people tell you about concrete because most of them don't know the real nuts and bolts on concrete and and so and they don't understand it and especially things like alkalinity and certainly we've even discussed uh some of the challenges as it relates to alkalinity and and martin the, the nice thing about a you know mentioning about the the rebar and of course the, the other products that we'll mention a little later is that it isn't susceptible to a lot of the issues we have relating to alkalinity except in its fiber form and in its fiber form uh, it can be, but with the E5 that you fellows have talked about, we can mitigate that concern where we have the issue with respect to alumina salts and alumina interacting with the concrete, with the alkalinity, thereby causing the hydrogen gas, which is a, a concern. We think based on the conversation we had earlier, we should be able to address that. So that yep, in itself, absolutely. Is, absolutely. that is a huge bonus. Because the fiber, as we talked about, when you put rebar or a mesh into concrete, it's not a homogeneous mixture. Whereas yeah. when you use fiber, depending on how you introduce the fiber, um, the fiber can be your friend or it can be your enemy. Um, and a lot of people think that, oh, well, my slump looks a little bit, little bit large, too big. I'll add a little water at the truck. But what they're doing is they're automatically now diluting that concrete and taking strength away. 
So the best way to add any fiber is to try and dry mix it if you can. That's the first thing. The second thing is, of course, that when you're using uh, any of our products, generally the alkalinity, and we've talked about different concrete uh, availability today in terms of standard ready mix or even bagged concrete, for example, higher alkalinities and other issues that are a, a real issue. In, in, for example, with the rebar, the rebar is actually coated as most FRPs are with an epoxy because that's how we hold together the fibers or the, the roving of the strands. Um, but it's only there temporarily until the concrete sets. Once that curing process is done, the epoxy really doesn't matter anymore. Um, okay. it, does, it does, but it doesn't, right? So, um, and the beauty of uh, our FRP is, is that it has a very low creep rate. Uh, basaltic bar has um, basically the expansion coefficient, the same as concrete. So it doesn't work against the concrete. It's resistant to alkalize, as, we, as we've noted. Um, it is two and a half, roughly around two and a half times the tensile strength of steel. It's a quarter the density. It won't conduct electricity. It has some really great features that other FRPs do have and don't have. So for example, glass has boron, which is a nasty thing. And the creep is a little bit different as well. Also, it's made from glass. When you look at Martin, you and I have talked at, at nauseum about this because we both have a passion for it. And that is uh, looking at things that are good for the environment. And this particular material all of the hard work was done by Mother Nature because Mother Nature did all the smelting, if you will. So when, when the basalt rock is mined, the only thing we need is a high heat source, which you can create with a, with a low heat source. It just, you have to have a transformer to do that. And it's cost one way or the other. But you can basically melt this uh, in a furnace and you can create this, this roving, which is then the fiber. And you have a very, very low carbon footprint the beautiful thing about the material, though, is, is that not only does it have a low carbon footprint, not only is it naturally occurring, but the benefit is it's like a circle economy product. Because when you do find an end of life situation, it can basically be ground up just like you do your concrete and it won't have any adverse effect on the reuse. Because of that, it's perfect for earth touching applications, high moisture applications, you won't have the same issues we do with contamination with a lot of the other uh, reinforcing agents. And the other thing is, is because it has the same coefficient of expansion as, as concrete, roughly, very, very minor difference, it can literally be laid right at the surface. So you don't need a corrosion cap anymore. So think about the savings, the carbon saving, carbon footprint savings just on that amount of concrete. If you have to have a three-inch cap, you don't need it anymore. Knowing that the material has you know, those inherent benefits and looking at the, uh, the potential for it, it's a real challenge. And, and as Bob said, right, everybody thinks they know about concrete and they think they, you know, you tell them, you know what, your pH is, is not right, but it's okay because the, they think their alkalinity is in line, right? They're like, they don't get the correlation between all of the chemistry to make a perfect concrete structure. So with now the, the advent of a lot of these lightweights where they're using post-consumer materials, we have found by introducing our either our fiber, because there's a low alkalinity, 
so it doesn't have any adverse effect per se. I still like this idea of E5, and I think it's a good thing to have as a countermeasure just to be on the safe side because it doesn't cost that much, but it costs a lot to pull up a slab. So, <laughs> right. But in looking at that, we've, we've seen with some of the lightweights because they internally cure Martin, we've, we've even beat the hundred. Uh, what did you say? The hundred foot? What did you call it? The continuous hundred by hundred. Yeah. 100 yeah. Foot. Okay. We've actually the infinity not, slab and infinity, yeah, infinity slab. We have not saw cut some of the slabs we have done. So we did a slab not so long ago. It was actually on television. It was a six inch thick slab. I believe it was 60 by 120. And the fellow who was in charge of the job forgot to order uh, the saw cutters. So he says to me, and he's got, he's got a bunch of sensors in there and I, I'm looking at the numbers and it's, and because of course it's a, it's a low temperature cure. I'm looking at it and it's like between 90 and 100 degrees. So, you know, between 35 and you know 36 C. I said, don't bother. He goes, what do you mean don't bother? I said, you're not going to need it. He goes, why? I said, this is not going to crack. And I said, and if it cracks in two days, it's not on us. It's, it's your base. He said, no. He was down there for a week and a half with a flashlight looking for micro cracking. He could not find anything in that slab. So... I would challenge you to take a look at the opportunity to try and use the fiber and we would tell you the proper dosage. We actually have a number of uh, published papers and, and peer journals that we have undertaken over the years to make sure that what we are saying is in fact true. Some time ago, when I first started getting into the basalt, the gentleman who introduced it to me was Dr. Madagula. And at the time he was the, uh, he was the associate professor at the University of Windsor. And I thought he was out of his mind when he told me about this product and what it could do. And I said, no, I don't believe you. And he was telling me about it. And so we started looking at papers. And there were a tremendous number of papers available. But all of them were very odd in the sense they had specific information and the data didn't make sense to us. So I said, you know what? We're not even going to pay attention to these papers. Let's do our own. Let's take our product and let's do the research on it. So for the last 13 years, we have been working closely with the University of Windsor, which, by the way, has, I believe, the largest structures lab in Canada now. If not, it'll be the second largest, but I believe it is the largest. We have been working with Dr. Das at the, the university. And actually, Jamsheed was one of our research associates, and he actually did his PhD on, on um, some of the work that we were undertaking. So he has familiarity with it for a very large number of years. And when the, we did this doctor's research, name, sorry to interrupt you, David, what's the doctor? How do you spell the doctor's name at Windsor? D-A-S. D-A-S. Yes. And, and Jam said you have a PhD under this gentleman? Yes. Yes. Dr. Srikanta Das. Yeah, yeah. Das. Well, now, we'd, like, thing, we'd like to get some papers to read. I know Robert would welcome Oh, us. heck yeah. Thank you. If you find Robert the, the papers... Then I just wait for a summary, right? I wait for a summary because I'm a car. I'm going to give you a little, some anecdotal information. You can really have a lot of fun with your customers with. Um, what you can do is you can challenge them. Try to guess how thick our slab is. Okay. I'll say, okay, well, what do you mean? Said, okay. So I want you to do this as just as a matter of course. Walk out any concrete, standard concrete, and you can tell them exactly how thick it is. 
And, you know, I, I, I've done this with uh, flying inspectors. So I said, this makes you look really smart. What you do is you step off the average cracking of the slab. If it's 10 by 10, the slab is five inches thick. If the cracks are 12 by 12, it's six inches thick. It's a squaring off that slabs do, that concrete does. It's called the one by two rule. That's what governs your control joints. So that's how you know how thick it is. So you said, if you want to see the real difference between our slab and theirs, you can't tell how thick ours is because we don't need these. So that's 30 times slab thickness? Is that what that is? It's, no, it's one to two. For every inch thickness, you want a two by two cut. So that's why your, your sidewalks are six feet or three inches thick. So you see the cuts are six feet. Very good. Yeah, wow. so it's, it's pretty – the only difference is when you're in the desert. It's a little bit narrower than that. Then it's one by one and a half. I don't tell them to go by one by two. Go by one by one and a half. Is that because of the hydration issue? It was well, the dryness because the concrete yeah. shrinks a lot more. Yeah. And now with E5, that's changed, correct? Yes, that's changed. And and the other thing I wanted to add, which was really interesting, got my curiosity up, is one of the first studies I saw in colloidal silica was way back in 1974 by the Army Corps of Engineers. And they did a study. They didn't look at it as a secondary cement. They did it as an additive. What they noticed when they would keep adding the colloidal silica as an additive, it caused a better spread of the concrete and a more even spread. And it got around the rebars and it, and it helped diminish. In fact, in most cases, eliminated rock pockets and other void effects that are caused by drag. Now, that's the other thing that your competitors will do. If you, if you look at a polymer-based fiber, is you get a lot of drag. So basically, you get a lot of voids. When we used to treat concrete with, say, like a polypropylene fiber, we knew that it was going to take at least 20% more concrete sealer to be applied because it made the concrete that much more permeable. This, coupled with, with your material, which, which is in, sense, in a sense, another type of aggregate. It's just a different form. It's another aggregate. It will treat it as another aggregate. So everything will be homogenous and integrated. Correct. The polymers are not integrated. It is a dissimilar material. It will never work in the same way. I don't care what they tell you, what they try to show you. It does not work in the same way. Functionally, it does not work. What I see in yours is it's a functional working. Yes. And to add to that, Bob, we have actually done testing, ASTM standard testing. What it has determined is that by the introduction of our fibers, it will increase surface hardness naturally by yes. about 25 to 30%. So you don't need to add any chemical admixes or pozzolans to try and get you that sur additional surface hardness. But I think with that E5 introduction as well, I think it would make it even better, quite honestly. Yeah, yeah, because now the even spread and plus the internal curing that you get, because when you look at a particle size, if you look at the surface, when the surface starts evaporating water, that cools the concrete down. So the more surface area you have, the more evaporative cooling you have, the curing will be uniform all the way through. Your concrete will be exactly as hard and the same compressive value a quarter inch into the concrete as it is all the way through. That does not happen with standard concrete. The top one inch is always weaker, always. Absolutely. absolutely. Even in a lab. Yeah, absolutely. And that's because like you said, of the hydration, right? So Correct. during the process. So laterally dilutes the, the top level, unfortunately. Yes. And see, without the cooling effect, like you saw with the 90 and 100 degrees, 
You know that the calcium hydroxide, as it's developing, which is a byproduct of cement hydration, becomes insoluble at 100 degrees. So what it's doing is actually stymieing development of cement. But by adding the internal curing compound, you're actually uh, reducing that heat generation that you would normally get. So that's why you're not going to get that basically lens effect that you would normally get in a hot day. David, uh, for Jamshed and you to remember, this is somewhat consistent with what we're finding. Four ounces of colloidal, which is liquid, nanosilica per 100 pounds of cement is a very good. And, you know, that would that would be within uh, 20%, probably, you know. But the nice thing about this product, this E5, is that it's typically saving 15% of the powder. So when you look at 15% of the powder, if I put one gallon in an eight meter truck, and I did it the other day, you put it at the back of the truck and you rotate that truck, you know, for five minutes, you know, 7,500 turns. And this is right from Joe Shetterly. He did a lot of these things and uh, he was a finisher. And so he was always saying, well, there's a missing element. He and his dad, third generation finisher. And uh, sure enough, you know, he came up with it with Purdue's help. So Purdue's a very top university, as you probably know, Jam Shed. It's a well-known American university for concrete. And Luna Lou is the doctor there, the work of Luna Lou. And, and I think probably Robert can supply Jam Shed with a few, a few papers on a reciprocal basis to make sure our libraries are tight. So that four ounces per hundred for eight meters, that gallon only costs even with a markup, hundred bucks. So you're taking 500 kilograms of shockrate mix, let's say. It's less money, the cement savings is less money than the admixture that caused it. Comes to the whole thing too. We're getting in a DIN 2148, I think it is, Robert, the testing. 1048. 1048, I got to get that right. Uh, 1048. <laughs> anyway, on, on that, we're, we're seeing 80% reduced permeability, 80% reduce permeability. So you're, you basically have salt resistance, David. We want to see is the end of rehab cycles, and this will do it. That's why Robert and I are so excited, and we've done a number of podcasts together. And uh, this is a good one, I think, eh, Robert, to, to because to recommend the basaltic fiber would be common sense. Like, why recommend a helix fiber, a steel helix fiber? Would you agree? we got twice the stiffness. Yeah, I want to get metal and plastics out of concrete. It needs to be concrete. Basically, basalt is an aggregate. It's just another form. So if you can get concrete that holds itself together, that's exactly what you want because you're not dealing with dissimilar materials any longer. That to me is really a good end game because you're dealing with something that is compatible 100% all the way through. You're not dealing with dissimilar materials. I'll give you a good example. I was in Oregon and they were trying to repair this bridge and the repairs weren't working. And I, I looked at their, uh, the chloride analysis. I said, well, that's because you're using a clean patch. He said, what, what do you mean? He said, you need to put chloride in your patch. He said, well, we, we can't do that. We're going to cause corrosion. I said, no. What's causing corrosion is you're putting that clean patch in because you're sell it, setting up a galvanic cell. What you want to do is get them as close together as possible. You're putting in dissimilar materials. So they experimented. They had... They had patches that they put in that were clean, patches with about 50% of the chloride contamination and one with 100%. The ones with 100% that matched the concrete stopped having problems. 
I said, look, you're just trying to buy time. This is the way you buy time. And that revolutionized the way that they repaired their bridges. They didn't know they would have to contaminate their <laughs> repair material to keep it from corroding faster. You know, it's funny you mentioned that, Bob, because we actually provided a, a large consulting firm here in the province um, a repair method to repair bridges, the abutment walls and the bearing plate uh, seats, because those tend to be the areas that are mostly adversely affected due to the road salts, because they all seem to come off the, the structures and kind of find their way down along the abutment walls and right on these yeah. bearing seats. So we actually had a, uh, a method to repair it and they all shook their heads and said, it can't, it's not possible. You can't do this. Well, we did demonstrate it on a high load bridge where we repaired it. And they said, well, but we would use carbon fiber. And I said, at five times the cost, sure. I said, but it's not UV resistant and it's going to work against it and it's going to wick moisture and you're going to have the same problem. And trying to help our fellow engineers understand the differences. The difficulty is, as you just mentioned it a moment ago, and it's perfect, Bob. How many people know about dissimilar metals? I do because of my background. But yeah. A lot of people don't understand. So when, when our fellow civil engineers look at something, they've relied on the materials people. But there's a huge disconnect. There's a disconnect between application and there's a disconnect between science or, or the engineering behind it, right? The implementation is there's a gap there. And so they don't always understand that sometimes, like you said, right, you have to use the bad thing to make it work good. Yeah. Okay. Even worse, in my opinion, is truncated science, where they use a fixed amount of uh, influences and they ignore influences outside of that. Because when you're dealing in the field, you're dealing with kinetics. You're not dealing with just thermodynamics. You're dealing with kinetics. There's all these odd influences that you can't possibly predict or duplicate in a lab. You have to figure it out in the field first, then bring it in the lab and figure out what you did. Too many people are doing it the other way around. They, they make the stuff in the lab. Oh, look how good this is. Oh, that wasn't supposed to happen. Oh, that wasn't supposed to happen. No, find it first. Find the solution, then figure out why the solution works. We've gone backwards for whatever reason. I truly believe, I think part of it is, is we've become, it seems more hands-off. Yes. I think there's less practical engineers out there. I know we've had some folks who've left our organization because they didn't like the fact that they would sit behind a computer all day. And I said, you're not going to sit behind a computer all day in this business. I said, in our business, you're going to be in the field. In our business, you're going to get your hands dirty because that's the only way we can understand and see what's going on. And not only that, but as we know, and Martin will tell you this with his many, many, many years of experience, walking one meter or three feet away from some structure is completely different to what you saw back there a meter ago. And yes. how do you address that? Well, again, right? It's well, well, the book says, look, time, money, you got three shovels, yeah. you got five <laughs> operators. They're yeah. all standing here waiting for you. What are you yeah. going to do, right? I'm going to do. Yeah. So you know, it's it's all about being able to address the situation. And yes, yeah, sometimes we make the best decisions we can, and sometimes the best ones don't turn out to be perfect. But they certainly are uh, as educated as it can be because we have an understanding. And half the time, the folks that are on those on those tools, 
they already have the answer for us if we yeah. only were willing to listen. You know, and, and it's funny because the folks who have who've handled our products, the trades folks, they absolutely think it's the bomb. Right? I mean, yeah. you pick you pick up a hundred meter coil of rebar in one arm and you can carry it, right? Ten millimeter rebar. Seriously. Seriously. Wow. It's a great weight. It weighs 38 pounds. Oh my God. Yeah. Um, it doesn't, and it doesn't, what do you do? What do you do to keep it from floating? Specific gravity is basically the same as, as concrete. So it doesn't oh, float. Yeah. Wherever, yeah. It makes sense. Wherever you put it, that's where it'll sit. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Because, because we can even get aggregate float, which is uh, one of the problems they have when they use curing compounds, which is the other reason why I want to get away from those. When you get aggregate float, because the lighter amorphous aggregates towards the top. Right. And then when they cure it, it, they get a concentration of alkalinity and it causes the surface of the concrete to start breaking down before it's even cured. You know, it's curious because when we've run into situations where we've had folks on site and we have the coils, or we can do them in sticks as well, depending on what people prefer. But the difference between us is we only need a six inch overlap versus steel, which is 12. Okay. And because of our, our tensile strength and, yes. and pull strength. And the interesting thing is, is that we have actually worked with some of these folks where they've said, because it doesn't have a memory like steel, we don't have to have a straightener on site. We had a customer that did a slab that was, I believe it was about 250 by 500. So it was a very large slab. He had planned to have two weeks to have his guys there cutting and tying. He was done in six hours with our stuff. Well, so you said it doesn't have memory, so this doesn't have creep? It had very minor amount of creep. Very minor That's amount awesome. of creep. That's awesome. That so, is awesome. That, so that, that is such a big deal for a really huge slab. Huge deal. The, uh, the fellows who've been putting in pools have, and gals, I guess, they've been coming to us because now they don't have to have grounding permits. So it saves wow. okay, gotcha. a lot of money. Wow. Because now they yeah. don't have to run that. And you know what the cost of copper wire is like now. Oh, so, yeah. Uh, and, you know, it's 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 not 24 gauge that we're running, right? I mean, it's it's the heavy duty stuff and it's expensive. So they've been uh, they've been quite pleased with that. And they've seen it as a benefit, even that in the mesh. We think that and, and in Martin's case, when when we originally talked, Martin and I, we looked at uh, a number of different applications. And of course, his his uh, culvert repair there's a lot of flexibility there because we can literally bend a four millimeter, not just the rope, but a four millimeter piece of rebar. I can literally bend it in a circle. So we are looking at actually making hoops, but Martin found that it was a better opportunity to use and to look at the, um, the rope because we had done all the modeling and the design with him yeah. to try and see what would best work. And Martin ended up and his team ended up, you know, going toward the, uh, the, the rope, which which makes sense too, because you can also tension it. Uh, this for this for suspended slabs is amazing because one of the things that is not appreciated and not dealt with. This will be probably a little bit of some more new information for you. When you get on suspended slabs and you get the stack effect, you get a temperature differentiation as well as humidity right. differentiation. The bad part of steel that's very underappreciated is that the conductivity of steel is about a hundred times that of of concrete. So when you get cool, it gets cold very rapidly. And if it's touching something, then what happens, you get a dynamic where you get the moisture movement. This would not encourage that. That's correct. Now, now I have to tell you that basalt rebar 
is great for certain applications. It isn't the same as in terms of steel because it doesn't have the same flexural strength. However, it may not have the same flexural strength, but you can compensate for it by using more. So it doesn't mean that it won't work. It just means it might be a little more costly. But as Martin had said, uh, right now, our, like our 10 millimeter rebar, we're selling it roughly for 55 cents a foot. Can so, this be used structurally? Pardon? Can this be used in structural elements? Uh, in certain structural elements, yes. We're actually working on doing columns, but we're looking to make stirrups and saddles as well. But right okay. now, most stirrups and saddles, they will not allow an FRP for very good reasons yeah. because you can't get the continuous structure, right? So, yeah, but, exactly. but I mean, what they don't see in steel is when they do that, they're weakening the steel anyway to make them. So, yeah. you know, it's just, it happens to be stronger than what we can be at the joint. Um, gotcha. But we can bend it. We have, we're actually in the process of working with a, a builder, a large scale builder to do some tests because he wants to build multi-story buildings. And we're looking, we know we can do columns, but we just don't know that we can reinforce the column, if you follow what I mean. Yeah, and see, something like this, you heard about the Surfside condo collapse, right, in Southern Florida, where, um, okay, there's a lot of reasons why that happened. One of the reasons was they used, one of the first questions I asked, was that was that placed in, 19, in the 1980s? They said, yeah, 1981. I said, yeah, we had that garbage cement that they imported. Now, if you can put your, uh, especially say, ocean-facing structures with this, you don't have to worry about that anymore because there is no corrosion of the steel. Correct. So your, so your seacoast structures and things of that nature, they keep redoing these things over and over again. Well, if you use this, you don't have to do that. And you can put in better concrete. It's rather than worry about this 40 years down the line, like they are with these condos now, they're panicking. Two, three, four hundred years from now, who cares? It will still be there. See, and, and, you know, to your point earlier about people not understanding concrete, I think a lot of them still don't understand that concrete likes to be contained, right? I don't think they realize that. So, and, and the purpose of the, the rebar is to really, as, as we talked about earlier, Martin, right, is to prevent cracking. So to hold that concrete together. But when you do have a failure, then you want to contain it. And if you can wrap it, in such a way that you can then hold that structure together. You may still have some degradation of the steel inside continuing, but that structure is no longer dependent on the steel. It's now dependent upon the containment and the concrete yeah. doing its job. We actually, with the, the local county here, they were gonna have to uh, take uh, one of their high load bridges out of service, and we only have two high load roads here and, and, uh, and those are the roads that are basically in excess of a hundred thousand pound load. And it's a, a bridge. And we, along with um, the county and Dr. Das at the university, uh, we rebuilt this bridge and Jamsheet can actually show you some, uh, we can, if we can share the screen, we can show you some of the things we've done. But what's really interesting is, is we repaired the high load bridge and that was back in nine, no, what was that 17? 2017. And we go back and we look at every single one of our projects that we do. And every six months, we do a report just to make sure we understand yeah. what's happening with the material and how it's behaving. And it is absolutely perfect. We also did. Um, uh, I, I, I need all that data. We're going to get it for you. 
We will get that for you. Okay, good. I have a stupid question. Maybe it's not a stupid question, but I think it's uh, with E5, which is largely uh, not going to crack at all. Why can't we do this? And I, I really believe Roman concrete probably didn't have rebar. It was just done with the volcanic ash. I got to believe that, Robert, that with fibers of sufficient density and length, perhaps that's what would you typically recommend, David, like a, a one inch? It depends on what we're trying to, to achieve, right? So are we trying to achieve crack control or are we trying to increase strength? Because well, we don't. Keep in mind, we don't really have any problem with crack control anymore. Like you, you put yeah, them together. Yeah, we, we can put that one to bed. Yeah. You, okay. It's going to resonate. So why can't we do the bloody columns on a parking garage with fibers? I don't believe that you have to do it with bar. I'm not even nope. sure that, well, that that labor's worth it. I would say we actually have a different windowed mesh sizes, and we have a soft. So we have a non-resin and a resin coated. But we put the resin coating on because of the alkalinity. If we're using something with low alkalinity or no alkalinity, then we will use the non-resin coated. But if that's the case, it will literally, it's right here in my hand here. Can you see that here? Yeah. And if you look, I can form it and roll it around any structure. So if I want to go around a square corner, which they typically aren't, they have a beveled edge or something, or, or if they're a round pier column, we can do that with the smaller windowed mesh. And then we basically parge over it. We actually repaired a number of uh, hydro poles here in our municipality as a, as a demonstrator project for them five years ago. And the only thing we've had is a little bit of shrinkage cracking, which we expected because we were using a latex modified mortar. And they didn't seal it when we needed to because the weather came in. So it sat for a year, but generally... It has performed extremely well. And that's exactly it, Martin. You, I agree. You, you can use, you could probably use the fibers, but I would prefer to use a mesh only because then we can distribute it homogeneously around the structure. Why wouldn't we get a density of fibers? It's going to be cheaper for placement, but the fibers, in my opinion, what, what would be your, uh, you criticized me before for tests we ran where I didn't have enough fibers, but I was dealing with a pretty confident set of admixes. That was a, our Fang Mix 1, Robert, where we were putting mag oxide, E5, and uh, what was the other thing we had? Uh, we had your basaltic fibers. Then we just, I just start, sort of had a realization with E5 that is, that's all I need for my product. I don't need mag right. oxide. Yeah. I need to jump in here because I have a project they wanted to potentially uh, retain me on. And they're probably going to need some rehabilitation of the concrete. And when you're telling me about the wrap like that, have you ever tried this with a passive cathodic protection? Well, I mean, yeah, it would act naturally as that because the rebar was exposed. So, yeah. well, suppose we add like a zinc to it or to your parge coat would basically fool the uh, the anode. I guess to deionize or to uh, take away the, the galvanic charge, right? Correct. Um, yeah. Correct. So I don't see it having any adverse effect at all. In fact, if anything, it, it's neutral, right? So... You could do whatever you wanted in terms yeah. of your zinc coating. That'll take a bit of work, but that's some promise because uh, with a lot of these seacoast structures, if we can move anode away from the steel, we can at least preserve it. And then keeping it wrapped like that, like you said, contained, we can really reduce the amount of repairs that they have to keep doing every, because it's an accelerated pace. Because a lot of these structures, 
they're doing repairs in 12 to 15 years on these structures that are supposed to last 50 to 75 or 100 years. So if we can extend that lifetime, again, you know, you're you're looking at reducing the carbon footprint every time you do that. So basically, you're you're ticking all the boxes that they're looking for. So not only is it on the front end, but on down the line, we're affecting the carbon footprint as they go, and that's something I don't think they've anticipated. No, and that's I would like to explore. For, for sure, we'd be more than happy to work with you directly on that and to provide some of some of the rehabilitative engineering if you need it as well. So. Yeah. Um, Interestingly enough, to that point, there was a uh, there was a state on the West Coast, which we won't tell you who they are, but we made a proposal to their uh, Department of Transportation and to introduce our material, and and they were very interested. And it took about six months to go through their whole vetting process, and they finally came back to us and said, "Now, of course, they're very environmentally conscious, right?" They came back and said, "You know what? I think we're going to stick with carbon fiber." And I said, "What?" They said, yeah, we're going to stick with carbon fiber. And I said, but it conducts electricity. Why would you use that? You're creating a naturally occurring degradation agent to your fix. Why why are you doing that to yourself? And it's not even environmentally friendly. And it's in earth touching applications where there's the potential for some contamination. I'm sure minute, but still not the, not the point. Right. And, and I just couldn't, I couldn't get over it. And it's that whole i think mindset that people really have a hard time looking at something different but it's so simple it should be easy right but it's not no it's not and and let let me tell you i say this and i repeat this for a lot of the presentations i make i said for all the blather we hear about oh wait we need to change we need to do this at the end of the day the only one that likes change is a wet baby (laughs) <laughs> you know, they don't want to change. It's true. It's true. I mean, you, you got to drag them kicking and screaming into change. So the best thing to do is present this in a way where we're tickling the areas that they like. Oh, carbon footprint. You're doing what? That's what you tempt them with. Forget the performance. This is what they want to see. Yeah, but they don't want to see that either. They say they want to see that, but that's not yeah, what they're Because if they, if they get those carbon... Little marks next to their name. Oh, they're happy. If you play to their ego, play to their their priorities, that's sometimes the best way to go in. Uh, No matter how technically sound you are, like you just found out, it's falling on deaf ears. What we're seeing, Robert, in Canada is a tremendous uh, over-design going on by large engineers that I, I believe have consolidated. And they really look at it and say, well, why not make the subway wall at Young and Finch in Toronto a meter thick? Yeah. You know, when when the wall from the 60s is still there and it's 16 inches thick and they're yeah. tying into those walls. David, a thousand kilograms of steel in manufacturers, 7,000 kilograms of CO2. What would be the comparable when we look at your bar? You're basically melting it, right? So it's nowhere near the same process. Do you have a, a relationship in terms of a thousand kilograms of basaltic bar? In, in terms, Martin, of the manufacturing carbon footprint? Yes, yes. I honestly don't have that readily available, but it it really is, honestly, it is really only a factor of the energy that is required. There is no byproduct. There is no waste, no nothing. Now, remember that this material is also 
basically resistant to heat up to over 1400 C. So to heat this, you need a very special furnace and you need uh, a rhodium bushing because it's the only exotic metal that won't basically melt at that level, but it does degrade over time. So it is, it is costly uh, to manufacture it, but to fiberize it, it is a very, very minor amount of energy required in comparison to the smelting uh, of steel. Robert, let's try and nail that down in the coming weeks. I think it would yep. be useful to, uh, to have an answer for that. that. It's not, it's not seven times the weight. Well, that, uh, I'll be honest. That one's outside my wheelhouse. You guys have had it. <laughs> well, it's uh, David. I think you know the energy involved in melting it. Yeah, and yeah. I, I, know, I know what it is, but I, I just don't. I don't know the comparison to steel. So we'll look into that, and and we'll try and furnish that back to you, Martin. I know when you smelt the rebar, it's it's going to be seven times the uh, you know seven times the CO two of the weight of the rebar. So yeah. anyway, it'd be just nice to have. I think the fibers and E5 are are the future. Yeah. Well, there, there is no CO2 emission from what we're doing, right? There well, is none. There you go. There is zero. Other than burning the energy. Other than the, the cost to create the energy that is being used. But like I said, we can use a low energy source and use a transformer to create a high energy source. It depends on where you want the cost to be. Do you want to be cost in energy or do you want to be cost in conversion of energy? So transformers can be expensive. So it just depends on, you know, on, on what you want. Obviously you'd like to go somewhere or have a, you know, the manufacturing done in an area where the kilowatt hour cost is, is relatively cheap in comparison to what we have, which is 13 to 15 cents a kilowatt hour, right? But there is zero carbon emission or zero CO2 emission when they're, when they're melting this rock. Cause there is none. Like I said, mother nature did all that work. That's so a real you, attribute right there. Is there any reason why fibers at the right density wouldn't replace the rebar? We just have engineers that are used to designing the rebar, right? I mean, it doesn't seem to me that it wouldn't work in a, well, in a matrix. Well, you have to keep in mind too, right? Anytime you introduce a fiber, no matter what it is, you are going to affect the compressive strength of concrete. So there is going to be some, even though ours may not be as detrimental, it will still affect the compressive strength. I believe that that is, is a concern. If you're doing slab on grade, shouldn't matter, right? But when we're talking about suspended structures and, and other things, it does tend to play into the concern, right? Unless you can of course, reinforce it accordingly. Go ahead, Jenshi. Can we share? Um, I'm, I'm going to can we share, can we share something I'm, with you quick? Yes. Oh, go ahead, Bob. I was going to say that the E5, because of the density it gives concrete, I think that if you use the, the system that we're talking about right now with the E5, if you go mono on mono with standard concrete, you're going to be at or better than what they have for compressive value. Good. Well, that'd be awesome. That's utilizing the, the fiber at the same time? Yes. Oh, okay. Yeah, you're not you're not going to weaken that below the standards that are currently being specified, because right now E5 gallops past standard concrete. Okay, it's much stronger. Uh, yeah. Can we share a screen? Yeah, can we share something with you guys quick? Yes, yeah. please. Is Sarah there? Can you see it? No, not now. Not yet. Just, uh, James, she's going to find you something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just one second here. So 
We have to go. Where is our screen here? So I'm sure coming. Oh, how's disabled? It. Yeah, it's disabled right now. We can't do it. Yeah, Sarah's. I think left the building. So okay. But we can insert it later. Yeah, splice in later. Yeah. Oh, what uh, what I wanted to say, I think you cannot replace fibers with rebar, and the reason is the length of the fibers. You know, they are very good in preventing the shrinkage crack or micro cracking. Yeah. But when it comes to load bearing functions, they are not as good as rebar. You know. True, but I'll bet you it'll work. Oh, yeah, in certain applications, sure. Yeah. Yeah, but if there's a like a if there's a secondary support, but you're not going to get any engineer to approve something like that without a contiguous reinforcement all the way through the concrete. It's right. just not going to happen. Not in our lifetime. Yeah. But yet, Roman, but yet the arches for Roman concrete exist, right? Yeah. It doesn't matter. It, so you show them Roman concrete's been around for two thousand years. Okay, but what about a reinforced concrete? Suppose you know the deflection and uh Oh I know that I I know we're fighting City Hall with that. Yeah. And that we're gonna take one step at a time, but yes, you know, certainly I would be interested to put it against Helix and you know to, to see how far we can go with it in certain applications. Keep in mind in ICF they're they're getting rid of the rebar, putting fibers with E5 now, Robert, in ICF walls. See, and, and, and you know what? And, and that just contradicts everything, doesn't it, with ICF walls? Because, I mean, it's it's an unnaturally occurring environmental disaster, right? I mean, yeah. right? <laughs> and yet, you know, we talk about going green and we're using ICF. Well, what is the matter with us, right? Where we could do this properly, right? We could do yeah. this properly with the right reinforcement, probably and more likely with the E5 mix and, and using our our reinforcement material, but you know what? They're they're looking for ways to speed up the uh, the production, right? So that's all it's that's all it's for. There, there's no other real benefit. I mean, yeah, I get it. Provides some insulative properties too, but you know, it's it's a, not a nice thing to have, right? Everybody's been pushing away from the use of foam, and here we are using it. Yeah, I, I don't know. material. <laughs> I'm good with the uh, the fact that walls don't crack anymore, and you can get a basement wall done. With formwork, yeah, true. It's uh, I I wouldn't specify. I did, did a lot of ICF over the years, but it, it was just a, you know, some people fall in love with something and they they uh, they'll use it. You know, it's gonna love this. Is up in Canada, there's a gentleman who's I regard him as being one of the one or two best experts in the country on curling of concrete. His name is Keith Robinson. When he sees this combination, he's gonna go crazy because. He'll be able to specify concrete where he doesn't have to put in all these control joints. The concrete's not going to curl. The concrete's not going to crack. Because right now he's doing a really good job of basically linking between divisions three and nine in uh, in the construction documents. And the other guy that uh, we need to bring into the fold here is a gentleman by the name of uh, Chris Maskell. And he's basically head of uh, NFCA, which is the Northern Floor Covering Association for Canada. And he's probably regarded as one of the top five peoples in North America of an expert. When he sees this, he can't endorse it, but what he can do is he can make introductions. And I think we can get this into the flooring industry very quickly, especially with these suspended floors, because you know they've gone to gypsum and lightweight concrete and all these other things. We can give them 
concrete equivalent value and strength, and they can probably go left dinner. The other thing is, is workability. Because, yes. you know, typically when you look at the typical uh, steel fiber, for example, which seems to be the go-to, you got to scarify a floor. Yeah. Right? This you don't have to. And if we can address exactly. Exactly. Put it in and they can install four in a month. They don't have to wait three months. Yeah. Yeah. And and the beauty is, of course, no micro cracking, additional surface hardness. We can, if they need a puzzle. And I guess, I don't know how, how does the E5 react with like a a hardener or. It doesn't need it. They've got, they've got an integrated system. They've got a finishing aid they put on. That, uh, oh, completes, that completes the reaction. They don't need to put a curing compound on or a hardener. No. Basically, it's as hard as you can get without polishing. Oh, geez. And so, and that's the other thing I, I've been battling with some of these specifiers on. I said the density of the concrete has very little to do with bonding. It is the polishing because if you look at the, say, like a microsilica and calcium uh, silicate under a microscope, it's very craggy. There's a lot of places for the resin to grab and bite. So even though it looks real dense, it doesn't look like it's going to stick. The only problem you have with that, that's one issue we have to deal with, is dew point. Dew point, because what happens with a really dense surface, it takes only a slight amount of water to create a bonding issue. So it's the only problem we have is making sure they monitor the site correctly. Because if they monitor the site correctly, they will have no flooring failures, period. Zero. You know, it's interesting you, you mentioned that, Bob, because we, we uh, the same builder that we're working with on this development of uh, columns for multi-stories, they also were pouring uh, a very large concrete s- section at their uh, their facility. And I think it was somewhere in the area, about a almost a 200-meter pour. So it's pretty big. I think it was a six-inch slab. Were you there for Jim? Were you there for that? It was, yeah. Six-inch. Yeah. The, the yeah. And it was 2,400 square feet. Yeah, so it was a six-inch slab again. This was an exterior one. And instead of putting any reinforcement, weld wire mesh, whatever it was, we put, basically, we determined where they were going to cut their control joints. Yeah. And we put rebar in those control joints every two feet. And now it's been on the ground for two years. They have no curling. Um, and it is absolutely doing just fine, like the in terms of what you would expect, because you expect to see that curl in all likelihood, right, with no reinforcement or anything in it. Yeah, and also with the newer cement, you can – it's almost unavoidable you will get curl once the temperature goes above 60 degrees mm-hmm. Fahrenheit. Yeah, and they poured, I think it was end of October or something. So it, it was kind of an ideal time. Yes, it was. It wasn't too yeah, hot. That's it ideal. Cold for them, so it worked yeah. pretty good. But, but in terms of uh, you know using again the the rebar, um, you know to act as basically a uh, if you will a, a control joint or in this case um, you know a load transfer dowel. Yeah, I'll give you an example. Um, when I was still in San Diego, uh, Avery Dennison. Uh, had me go down and go look at three of their uh, warehouses because they were freaking out because the concrete curled so badly they'd caulked the joints and it was extruding the caulk almost an inch in some places. So what do we do? I said, okay, well, you're going to take the caulk out. And what I want you to do is prime the entire surface with an epoxy primer and leave it alone for about a month. 
I said, why? I said, because you're going to relax the concrete. The curling's going to settle down. We should get rid of most of the curl. And that's exactly what happened. So I showed them an opposite way of doing it because they would caulk first and put the coating down. I said, you have to do the opposite. You got to prime it, then go ahead and clean the joints. Once it settles down, put in your caulk, then finish your floor. And that's the way they fixed it. Wow. So they were going to do all this other expensive crap. So you don't have to do that. Just change your change the order. You talked about bringing Chris Maskell on a show a few weeks ago. We should do one with David. And, uh, yeah. Show, okay? And really explore combined experience there. Yeah. You know, I have to tell you, Martin and, and Bob and, and Jamsheet will tell you, the amount of well-educated, knowledgeable people that are living in the dark ages is, is staggering. Really is. You know, especially in, in this industry, right? And I get it. You know, their grandmother, their grandfather, aunt, uncle, they always did it this way. And this is how they're going to do it going forward. And Jamsheet saw it firsthand the other day with a contractor. Said the exact same thing. Well, you know what? Uh, I don't know. I just, I've always done it this way. We've always done it that way. Nobody wants liability. But even when you present everything to them and say, look, I'll take the liability. I am that confident that I know this is going to be your outcome. You still can't convince them. And I give them the material. <laughs> yeah. That's the what baby thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But, you know, it, it seems to be more and more, it just seems to be more and more prevalent. I do know that one particular case when we spoke to our transportation folks, they had said, well, we've kind of overly invested in, in uh, carbon fiber and GFRP in terms of, you know, what we want to do. And I'm like, okay, but why wouldn't you consider this? And they said, well, you know, we just don't want to. And then they would put up roadblocks saying things like, well, there needs to be three suppliers. And I'm like, look, just try it. I mean, and if you need three suppliers, fine, I'll open up three companies. I don't care. Right. Um, <laughs> um, one of the things we can do, I'm pretty good at this is what you do is you set up rather than saying, okay, this or equal, what you do is you find things that can get accomplish what you can do as long as you can find two other sources that can accomplish pretty much what you do under a performance standard. You basically write your own ticket without being proprietary. You do a performance standard, a performance specification. This is what the end product is going to do, and here are the steps that how you validate this works. Then what you do is you find other products that work like that. For example, with E5, the only other product I've seen that works like that costs 10 times as much. And there's two or three of them out there. Well, fine. They're equivalent. Bring them in. They can't compete. It doesn't matter. That's the way around it. Because the government will never take a proprietary source unless you're Monsanto. If you go in and you give them a performance spec and there are materials out there or systems out there that can meet the spec, that's what you give them. And here's the other two. If yours costs 10 cents a foot and theirs costs $20 a foot, it doesn't matter. It's the performance. It's not expense. If you can find equivalent systems out there, I will help you build the spec. If you get the commercial market, right, Robert? Yeah. Take it there yeah. and, uh, and be a little bit uh, like... I don't see any reason why David's bar wouldn't be very successful with E5. Correct. Fiber with E5 on yeah. Yeah. Slab and very bar. Much. In with commercial guys that want the money, right? Yeah. I mean, 
in the special foundation area, the good thing about that, David, is it's uh, it was always designed build, right? Because, you know, the more inventive guy with the soil and with the solution, that's where I got a lot of advantages. But the uh, they, a lot of that's designed build. And so uh, that's essentially what you're doing, David, right? You're doing design build. Right. Literally. Yeah. And, and, you know, the interesting thing is, Martin, is that most everything that we do, we will do the engineering work. And we also stand behind the information and the product so that if people have questions, we'll show them how to use it. We'll show them how to properly apply it. And, uh, and most importantly, we will help them design it if that's what they if that's what they require from us. So you're getting the not just the material, but you're getting the, the engineering behind it because we know that, unfortunately, we've seen it firsthand that we have to handle some materials a little differently. So not all admixes get added the same, right? Not all, yeah. not, not all uh, you know, materials get laid the same. There's, there's ways to do it. So and to be effective and to have the right outcome. But it's, again, you know, it's, it's education and it's, it's application. And the more they see it, you know, especially the, the folks when they, when they don't have to have, you know, orange hands and you can literally cut our 10 millimeter rebar with bolt cutters, you know, and our, and our mesh you cut with a pair of scissors or an X-Acto knife and you can cut it to the shape. So, and the same with the fibers, right? The fibers are very easy to use just like every fiber, you know, it will be itchy, but it's non-toxic, unlike the polys, and it won't wick moisture, as, as Bob said earlier. So there's a lot of real inherent benefits, and we try and share those with folks so that they, they understand how that works for them and their folks. But, you know, it's, it's getting good. It's all you, the R value. Oh, and the R value, value. yeah. There, there's, there's, a, there's actually an R value with our material. Well, are you comfortable really? doing detailed engineering in the States, David? We can do detailed. We, we don't have, uh, I mean, you have to, you have to be mindful of States uh, where you're at, depending on whether you need uh, designations or not. We don't have designations in all the States, but I'm in a couple. It's not hard to find a fellow PE or a, a local one to help them understand what we're doing. And then if you do the work for them and they know that it's legitimate, they still have to review it as if it's their own. We understand that because we would do the same as you would Martin, as you know, once they build confidence that we're able to support them, whether we would need to engage them to do the work for us, we could teach them how, and we have all the information and all the data to be able to apply. So believe it or not, FRPs are in the ACI code. It's just, trying to get everybody to understand application of it, but they're so used to what they were doing that it's very difficult to get them to make that paradigm shift. Very good. So I do value engineering today. I don't, st- I don't insure myself anymore for detailed engineering. I crossed over to the value engineering world. And I believe Robert would be more in, in, in that uh, support for the value engineering, the solution and the inventive uh, nature of saving money with sustainability i think it's been great to have you today and and think about that flooring one with chris you know i think he would enjoy meeting david even if you do it on a, on your own phone call uh, Robert. yes um because i think flooring is a key application for it's a huge five with the basaltic fiber yes to go back yeah. to that control joint scenario 
Was that needed, David, in your opinion, that you needed to uh, put those dowels? For that big, uh, for that one slab I just mentioned? Yeah. How big was the slab again? It was 2,400. Oh, no, no, it was more than that. More than that. Yeah, it was about, uh, I think it was about 20,000 square feet. 2,400. Yeah, it was long and wide, right? Were the dowels needed? The fellow who designed the driveway, he's a fellow PN, so that's what he spec'd out and he designed and, and he wanted to use that. So we said, we looked at it and we said, there's no reason you can't. I just don't know that, I don't know what to expect because we'd never done that in that application. But he, he didn't have a, he had no curling. And he also wanted to protect, I think, as well for any degradation potentially with the uh, the sub base, right? Was so that 2,400 square feet or 20,000? 20,000. 20,000. Yeah. It'd be interesting to try with E5, uh yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna jump in here because I don't think the dowels did anything. Me neither. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. I, I, in fact, the, the reason why I don't think so is because he went out there and he was looking for cracks. If you put a dowel in something like that and the concrete's gonna restrain here, what it'll do is I have smaller restraints out here at the end of the dowels. You should have seen parallel lines. If there was no parallel lines, the dowels did absolutely diddly squat. Yeah, and, and you know that was a different application, Bob. That that's a different one. This is an actual driveway. The other one was uh, okay. a covered slab. Okay. Um, he wanted to to do that, so we didn't understand why he wanted it at first. Made and him feel I, better. <laughs> yeah, well, I think yeah. he was more concerned about. I think he was more concerned about the slabs uh, shifting. So he was yeah. trying okay, to pull gotcha. the slabs together. Yeah, that's what I think is. I think that was his end goal, quite honestly. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Now, if you pour two individual slabs, yeah, absolutely put a dowel in there. Yeah, that's that's what. That's, he, yeah, because you don't want it doing this. You yeah. don't want you know you don't want to shimmy. You don't want any of that stuff. That's what I think his end goal was. Yeah, you put it in a slip dowel. Yeah, very good. Well, I suggest uh, it's pretty good for the today. I was going to uh, uh, knock it off, but Jim should help us out with the edit if you could. Yeah, sure, sure. And um, and particularly inserting some of David's material. And uh, if it would also be very useful if we could uh, combine a little bit on uh, some marketing together. I'd like yeah. to help David. Well, we appreciate I'm that. I'm sure Robert would, would as well. This to me has a lot of potential, Robert. And I'm glad oh, yeah. Oh, you, yeah. Had, you had the uh, ability to explain E5 and that we have the ability to put two great products together. What I'll do is I'll forward uh, an article. I did way back when, I think it was 1986, because we were doing restoration of the Frank Lloyd Wright falling water and some of these other ones about corrosion of steel and everything else. I have really been an advocate of moving away from steel, but I don't like epoxy coated steel for a variety of reasons. One, it doesn't bond to the epoxy. And two, it exactly the opposite of what they claim the epoxy will hold up to is, is true. I actually used to butt heads with this guy named by the name of Ken Clear. He was a former Federal Highway Administration official uh, engineer, and he went out on his own, and, and he was a big proponent of epoxy-coated steel, and he and I butted heads. Well, he went out and looked at the over at the Florida Keys, and a bunch of the concrete sloughed off the side. Was how you saw this pretty light green epoxy coated steel and the concrete sloughed off. There's some other areas where the corrosion was severe. Well, the corrosion was severe because they were seeing what it can have up to so many nicks. I said, the smaller 
an otic area, the more likely you are to have what's called knifing, where the corrosion just cuts right through the steel because it's not spreading out. You know, what you're telling me doesn't make any sense from a corrosion standpoint. Well, Ken had a crisis of conscience and he actually said, okay, I don't recommend it anymore. And the Concrete Reinforcing Steel Institute actually sued him. Well, the judge determined that the lawsuit was not only frivolous, they were trying to intimidate and put him out of business. And he had to spend so much money in the lawsuit, it ended up putting him out of business. He just didn't want to do it anymore. So I've been semi in touch with him since then. You know, I feel bad for the guy because that's how things are. What they're showing is something that gives us an option that's better than epoxy coated steel because we don't have to worry about anything chipping. We don't have to worry about anything not stick. The, the concrete's going to stick to that because it's an aggregate. It'll treat their fibers and their mesh just like it would any other aggregate. It's a married system. You're not dealing with dissimilar materials. Everything there works and makes sense. So that's why I was asking you those questions about that because I'd love to, that's the direction I, I would really like to see us going, especially for floors. This is an integrated floor that will never have a problem. Put E5 in the fibers, we're done. Joe Shetterly's bridge decks, he's done 200 bridge decks, which is his claim to fame lately. Um, yeah. He's putting epoxy bar down there. And yeah. I think Dan McCoy is the engineer that sometimes shows up. But if you go to their website, it's pretty good and you can get these. Uh, but in his bridge deck, he's got an epoxy bar. Yeah, on the on the top part, you don't need the bar. You you could go in with this instead and exactly. get away from the bar completely. And the engineer would want something, but I think it'd be a pretty quick PO for for these guys. Yeah, because the, the, all the structural components are underneath it. That we they don't need the steel in there. That's just to control the cracking. That's all it's doing. So they put epoxy because they're worried about de-icing salts. What they have is no, they don't have an issue with the icy salts, not with basalt. And they don't have an issue with the icy salts with E5. Correct. It is a non-issue now. They don't have to worry in the future that the epoxy isn't going to degrade at some later date. David, I'll send you that that one video with Dan McCoy talking, and he shows that you can see the green rebar in the background. Right? Yeah. We would like to, if possible, cast some beams because we have our own, we have our own lab. So we, we would like to cast some beams. We, we also have the university lab as well. What so, if I brought, listen, David, it's a chance to get face-to-face, -face, buy me lunch, and I'll bring you some E5. Oh, absolutely, Martin. Um, so let's follow up. Like, uh, I can, you know, I just carry it around in, in, in uh, gas cans, but clean ones. And, uh, <laughs> you know, you would be a long time using up five gallons, right? Because... Five gallons is 50. No, I go a long way, especially as you said, with four ounces per 100, 100 pounds of concrete. So, yeah, you know, I believe we can use E5 with uh, dry mix shockcrete and with your fibers. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That would be because we could just meter in the water or the yes. E5 with yeah. relatively. So compressing the strength of E5 compared to normal, like 30 MPA concrete. Typically, you're going to get better. So and that's why we dropped the cement 15%. Like a guy who's pouring a 350 kg mix, he's generally pouring it for different reasons because he wants to pump it or he wants to have the paste. But when you put E5 in, you create this fine paste that you can drop the cement content 15%. So similar to what Robert would say, you get a higher strength 
or and that's manifested by we can take some cement up, right? But but assuming but, but let's get you guys testing for sure. If you've got access to a good university, we'll support that. But I'm saying, assuming that we keep the the cementous uh, ratios the same, and we just put the E5 in, can we expect it instead of being a regular 2832 MPA? Would it be incrementally like? 10%, would be, 5%. I would say at least 10, maybe five to 7%, like five to seven MPA more. So, so we'd be jumping Robert? around high 30, yeah, and, 30, right? And where, where you're really going to see it is downstream because the um, initial development of calcium hydroxide takes about 28 days. So the conversion is occurring within the first 28 days, but you're going to see the strength gain go very rapidly upwards as as opposed to standard concrete at six months it's going to uh, the the uh, e5 concrete will even with your fibers will greatly exceed that even really high quality uh, low slump concrete that you would normally expect to be weakened you're going to see better numbers than you'll see with those oh so you see you'll see improvements post 28 days then. yeah, yeah so well past 20 days yeah okay yeah, well past yeah and it keeps going up i believe that if we looked at their numbers, you took your fibers, and let's say that you're, the concrete is targeted to be 5,000 PSI at 28 days. Well, this will be, then you're hoping for 6,500 PSI by the end of the year. I think with the same mix with E5, you'd probably see about it, it'd be more like 8,000 PSI. Do you find that adding your E5 makes the concrete any more brittle? Or is there no. some value? Okay. It increases the ductility. I like that even better. We just actually, we've been testing some beams that we've been reinforcing with uh, our rebar. And it's amazing that the level of ductility that we've, we've had at failure, we we're about 18 MPA. So oh, what is that? Maybe 16, 17,000 PSI, maybe. Okay. Somewhere around there. Our yeah. highest one was around 28,000 PSI. So but normally, had- yeah, I know what you mean, because I was a very outspoken critic back in the 90s. when David, I got to get going. Okay. But you guys, oh. if you want to keep talking, I, I think it might be recording, but because uh, Sarah's on the other end. But we can edit the back of a jam shed. You're going to help me, right? Yeah, right. We better put it in the It's probably a good yeah. time to end it. Because okay. I've got all these things. Yeah, we uh, can talk about all sorts of stuff. But yeah, I know. Awesome. Take care. Okay. All bye. right. Hey, thanks, gentlemen. Great to meet you guys. All right, gentlemen. Thank you. Nice to see you again, Martin. Thank you. I'll see you, Bob. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Value Engineering Experts Podcast. This podcast is sponsored by Footprint Engineering, a sustainability-focused civil engineering firm focused on helping owners pick earth-honoring systems that lower cost, schedule, and carbon footprint. Learn more at www.footprintengineering.ca.